0: Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for this book that Lewis has written for us to study. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we might grow in our understanding of you and in our understanding of the schemes of the enemy, that we might stand strong against them. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are listening to a beautiful choral anthem, which is called what? For the Beauty of the Earth. Yes, For the Beauty of the Earth. Does anyone know where this is filmed? St. Paul's Cathedral. Yes, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which is the great masterwork of Sir Christopher <coughs> Wren. And so if you look at this, you can see that it is a fantastically beautiful setting and it has a lot of those elements that we talked about earlier in class of things that draw your eye upward, architecture that is a book to be read about the glory of God and this particular song for the beauty of the earth is one that resonates very much with the letter that we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, One of the things that so often and unfortunately happens in the Christian church is that when we have a good understanding of the fall, which is very important to understand that the creation has been marred because of the fall, sometimes our tendency is to just throw out the whole thing and say there's nothing that's good and beautiful and true, and that is wrong to do that. and It's one of the things that we desperately need in the Christian church to recover. So it gives me great pain to turn this off, but I'm going to. Uh, In case you haven't figured it out yet, one of the great blessings of technology is that on YouTube now, you can find virtually every fabulous Christian choral anthem sung by one of the top choirs in the world in a beautiful space. And so if your soul is ever starving for beauty or worship or contemplation of the fair beauty of the Lord, I would commend to you listening, and particularly if you put this on a big screen and turn it all the way up. It's really great. Not that I've ever done that. (laughs) all right so we are back to the screw tape letters thank you for those of you that came out last week to hear uh the session about worldview and i commend to you mike dowling's book back here Uh, we have the author of the frog's rainy day tales book with us tonight and his wife who's the illustrator for all of it It's a great tool about worldview, which was something very important to Lewis, and we're going to touch a little bit on that tonight, Uh, but we're going to get back into the screw tape letters, and letter 13, I know you think I say this every time, but letter 13 (laughs) is one of the greatest letters in this book, so I am super excited about getting into it, but let's start again with our reminder about this battle that we're in and say together this verse from Ephesians. which is the word of God, praying praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And just a reminder again of how very proactive that verse is. This is not a lazy, do it when you feel like it kind of verse. This is a proactive verse about how it is important for us to be equipped for this battle. So again, part of the reason we're studying this, trying to understand the battle in which we find ourselves. And it's all too easy to be like that famous essay I've quoted a couple of times um, by David Foster Wallace. This is Water, uh, which has a little anecdote in it about the fish that are swimming around. And an older fish swims by and says, how's the water, boys? and the one little fish looks to the other and says, what's water? Because when you're in it, you often don't realize it. So the second thing is lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview, lessons on the psychology of temptation, and how to cultivate habits that deepen faith in Christ. We've talked so much about how there's a subtext about habits that runs all through this book, and then about living a boldly Christian life, a life that annoys the devil when you get up in the morning because you are someone who's going to make a difference in the world. We've talked about habits, uh, this whole idea so important about let him do anything but act. Action is what Satan is deathly afraid of. We can have all the sentimental spiritual thoughts in the world, but if we don't do anything about them, then Satan is quite happy with us. You will notice this is from letter 13. <laughs> so, and then this other part about your habits, you're only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. This alignment is so important. So just to rehearse a couple of the habits that we have (coughs) talked about uh, since we cranked back up in January, the first one is to choose your friends wisely. The whole idea that runs all through the book of Proverbs (coughs) about bad company corrupts good character, you become like the people you are around. And so that may be a good thing if you're around people who are wise and loving and deeply Christian, but if you are spending all of your time around people who are the opposite of those things, that will rub off on you. Secondly, cultivate authenticity, speak the truth, and love. Authenticity is something all too rare in our culture. We're very prone to wear masks to be hypocrites, to pretend that we have it all together. Remember daily that your faith requires you to make choices. Jeff did such a good job talking about this in his sermon this past Sunday where he was talking about the calling of the disciples and that when Jesus walked up to the disciples as they were fishing, he said, follow me. He didn't say, believe in me and then just leave it at that. He said, follow me. And all too often, particularly in the evangelical world, we think that once we have given our heart to Jesus, then we're kind of done. And that's not the way that the scriptures teach us. Also, living purposefully, avoiding the seduction of worldly vanities, keeping in mind what it is that you believe God has called you to, and orienting each day around that cultivating an integrated life rather than a spiritual-secular split, we live in one of the most compartmentalized cultures in the history of the world. And so who we are on Sunday morning at church versus who we are on the tennis court or who we are when we're at the club or who we are when we're at the workplace, those can all be very different. And yet we are called by Scripture to live an integrated life. Jesus is the most beautiful model of this, of someone who is always fully himself, no matter where he is. And then again, be deliberate about living out your priorities. The devil wants to stop you from this at all cost. And one of the things you might remember from this letter, he talks about what great fun it is for the devil for someone to think that their priorities are one thing, and then to live their entire life thinking that those are their priorities but not ever acting upon them so that at the end of the life they've realized that they've wasted their whole time. Then letter 11, avoid constantly surrounding yourself in person or virtually with scoffers. Psalm 1 is a beautiful psalm about this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or sits in the seat of scoffers. And we live in a world that's just full of scoffers. I mean, everywhere you turn. And social media is just loaded with it. The news media is loaded with it. And there's the whole idea of um, (laughs) scoffing shows that you are somehow more intellectual than other people. But scoffing is deadly. And we're gonna get to why in just a minute. And then secondly, cultivate joy. This annoys the heck out of Satan. Satan does not want you to have joy. And remember, one of the things that was said in this letter is that when the patient, the Christian, is experiencing deep joy in his relationship with Christ, do you remember what surrounds the patient when that happens? The fog and the asphyxiating cloud. (laughs) Yes. So what that means is that from Satan's point of view, that is... Beautiful armor that happens. When you are experiencing joy that comes from the Lord, Satan can't get at you in that. And this joy is connected in scripture with music and with heaven. And so those, those are things that should be encouraged and need to be part of our thought every day. All right, thirdly, plan regular times of fun that promote love, fellowship, courage, and contentment. Fun is something that is out of fashion right now. We think that being purposeful means that fun is not worthy. But fun is part of the matrix of how relationships are grown, how love develops, how servanthood develops. And God is not the celestial killjoy. God has made us so that we enjoy one another and his creation. Then avoid the use of humor and sarcasm as a socially acceptable mask for cruelty to others. I really am so tempted to just spend an entire class on that because I think this is so important. We live in a world that is so very negative and where people are really cruel to other people. And it's often done under the mask of humor. And if you really want to see this, go to a high school or a middle school and hang out during break time near where the snack machines are and just listen to the way students talk to each other. And if they're ever called on the carpet about it, they'll say, oh, well, I didn't mean that. I was just joking. And then they will go right back to this kind of cruelty. And yet scripture tells us that we are to encourage one another. That we are to encourage one another and that we are to encourage one another. It's amazing how much scripture there is about encouragement. And we just kind of ignore it. And we tend to fall into the world's way of doing this. And it's easy to do because sarcasm is funny. But when it's funny at someone else's expense that can be a problem, which leads us to the last one. Flee from flippancy. And flippancy is the idea that nothing is worth taking seriously, that you can make jokes about everything, um, even things that are sacred, that there's nothing um, about which you really need to be serious. Um, The great byword of flippancy in our culture is whatever. You You don't engage with what. Is actually happening and the choices that need to be made and it's interesting in this particular letter in letter 11 Lewis speaking from the perspective of the devil says that flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor against the work of God that he knows of because if you are flippant all the time you never take seriously anything that God might be trying to do in your life. So, and then from letter 12 um, from last time, be aware of your spiritual trajectory. Remember how we talked about a sailboat and charting a course, and if you're off just one degree, you might not be too badly off as you're leaving Charleston Harbor, but if you're trying to get to Europe, if you're one degree off when you start here, you're gonna end up in Africa. Um, Just slight deviations can become huge problems. And so if you're not taking stock on a regular basis of, am I growing spiritually? Do I feel like the Lord is teaching me? Am I developing in the fruit of the Spirit? Those kinds of things are really important to ask. The second thing in this letter was when you experience dim uneasiness spiritually, pray that God would open your eyes and lead you to any needful repentance. And you'll remember we talked about Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know me. Um, That is a great prayer to pray. If there be any wicked way in me, show me. The third thing, when you experience reluctance to enter God's presence, remind (coughs) yourself of the truth of scripture expressed in the parable of the prodigal son. And this is one of those ironic temptations That befalls people who are actually really serious about their spiritual life. Because what will happen is Satan will convince you that what you did, you, believing Christian, went out and did that thing, or you forgot to do this thing, and you are so bad that God is so angry with you that you do not dare to go into his presence. And that sounds so spiritual, and we're going to beat ourselves up about that. But the problem with it is that is not scriptural at all. What scripture tells us is that when we sin, we are to repent, which means we're to turn around, that's what the word literally means, and go to God. Uh, You see this in the Psalms beautifully, but most of all in the parable of the prodigal son. And so it is a reminder not to distance ourselves from God when we've messed up, but to run into his arms. And then fourth, Invest in healthy and outgoing activities that lead to joy and avoid isolation. Part of the sadness of our culture right now is that we live in one of the loneliest cultures in the history of the world. Um, People live in their own little boxes all over everywhere and there is um, not a lot of intersection among people's lives anymore. And This becomes more and more, and I love, believe me, I love Amazon Prime just as much as the next person, but there's a difference in driving to the Harris Teeter where I know I'm going to see every time I go at least five people I know, and maybe God is going to put other people in my path that I should talk to versus sitting at home and clicking on what I want and then having it show up where I never encounter another human being. And all of the trend lines of our culture are going toward isolation. And then we wonder why loneliness is one of the number top (coughs) health problems um, that we see in our country and in Western Europe. So investing by planning, we're not very good at this, especially if you've been around any teenagers lately, the idea of planning is like really crazy. Um, They like to say they're being organic. But what that means is that they don't plan anything and it just evolves out of what happens on their phone. But that is not a good way of living your life. And so part of investing in healthy and outgoing activities that lead to joy means thinking of things that involve other people and then planning to actually do them. Now, this doesn't sound like rocket science, but it's something that really rarely happens in our culture. There used to be lots of rituals like this in people's lives. There used to be family dinners. There used to be supper clubs. There used to be club meetings, all these kinds of things. And all of the metrics on all those kinds of activities are in a steep decline. And then there are two important truths about spiritual warfare from letter 12. The first is be aware of the power of nothing as used by the devil. And this is the idea of just sitting around doing nothing. And it is the most chilling passage, I think, in the Screw Tape Letters. And he talks about how the devil wants to isolate you and leave you sitting alone at night, in front of a fire that's gone cold, drumming your fingers on the table with half-awakened curiosities that you don't have the energy to pursue, and you just sit there and sit and do nothing and squander the gift of life that God has given you. And part of what's so eerie about it is it sounds just like somebody sitting for hours on their phone scrolling through social media, which, of course, none of that had been invented when it was written. But it's a very chilling thing, and it's things, again, as we talked about in the very first class, so often when we think about the way that the devil gets at us, we think about the devil spectacularly tempting us to do something really evil, like go rob a bank or you know that whole... Idea of pursuing some sort of really crazy lifestyle in Las Vegas or something like that. And we, we think that that's what temptation looks like. But as Screwtape says over and over again, why bother with spectacular wickedness when cards will do? Yeah, you know, That there are so many easy ways of tempting us into the nothing which is exactly what the second point is, that Satan is much more likely to rely on a slow and gradual turning away than on spectacular sin. And this is where he talks about um, the road to hell is the one that's comfortable underfoot, sloping gently downwards with no major signs or bumps, and you just keep slip-sliding away. So, Now that you're feeling good and (laughs) depressed about all that, we're going to talk about something wonderful in letter 13. So, here we go. My dear Wormwood, it seems to me that you take a great many pages to tell a very simple story. The long and the short of it is that you have let the man slip through your fingers. The situation is very grave. And I really see no reason why I should try to shield you from the consequences of your inefficiency. A repentance and renewal of what the other side call grace on the scale which you describe is a defeat of the first order. It amounts to a second conversion and probably on a deeper level than the first. As you ought to have known. The asphyxiating cloud which prevented your attacking the patient on his walk back from the old mill is a well-known phenomenon. It is the enemy's most barbarous weapon and generally appears when he is directly present to the patient under certain modes not yet fully classified. Some humans are permanently surrounded by it and therefore inaccessible to us. And now for your blunders. On your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book he really enjoyed (laughs) because he enjoyed it and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes and taken alone In other words, you allowed him two real, positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as not to see the danger of this? The characteristics of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. Thus, if you have been trying to damn your man by the romantic method, by making him a kind of child herald or a voter submerged in self-pity for imaginary distresses, you would try to protect him at all costs from any real pain, because, of course, five minutes' genuine toothache would reveal the romantic sorrows for the nonsense they were and unmask your whole stratagem. But you were trying to damn your patient by the world, that is, by palming off vanity, bustle, irony, and expensive tedium as pleasures. Now, I'm going to just stop for a minute. Probably most of you are not familiar with Child Harold, and Verto. So Child Harold uh, is uh, the name of a character in a long epic poem by Lord Byron. And he is one of those young men who has lots of money, and he kind of goes off on the European tour and tries all of these different things, he's like, oh, I am weary of the world. There are so many things that I've tried, but none of them please me. You know, and it just goes on and on, and don't read it. Um, and then there also is Werther, which is uh, based on a semi-autobiographical work by Goethe, Um, And it was made into an opera by Jules Massenet. Don't go see it. Um, (laughs) But it's exactly the same sort of thing. It's somebody who's complaining all the time about how dreary their life is and how much they suffer as they richly go on the grand tour through Europe, you know, in an age where there are people starving on the streets of London. You know, it's just ridiculous and so, were doing the hard work for us. <laughs> so what he's what he's saying here is that yeah. real pleasures and real pains are things that God uses and speaks through. And so those kinds of things you want to keep the patient away from. And look at this last line, palming off vanity, bustle, irony and expensive tedium as pleasures. And I just want to pause on that. Because that is the description of our culture. Mm -hmm. Vanity, (coughs) bustle, irony, and expensive tedium. There are several really interesting articles that have been written lately about what is now the most common answer when you ask someone, how are you doing? And when you ask someone, how are you doing, what do you think they're going to say? Not anymore. Some people will say that. How are you doing? I'm really busy. I'm really busy. And if you're not really busy, there's something wrong with you. And so this whole idea is that if you're busy, it doesn't matter what you're busy with. Just as, long as you're busy, that means you're meaningful. And so this whole idea of bustle, which is sort of the idea of busyness, vanity, irony, flippancy, and expensive tedium, There's so much expensive tedium in our culture right now. All right, I'm going to stop. Um, Got a lot more letter to get through. How can you have failed to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Didn't you foresee that it would just kill, by contrast, all the trumpery which you have been so laboriously teaching him to value? and that the sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all, that it would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust you have been forming on it and make him feel that he was coming home, recovering himself. As a preliminary to detaching him from the enemy, you wanted to detach him from himself, and had made some progress in doing so. Now all of that is undone. Of course, I know that the enemy also wants to detach men from themselves, but in a different way. Remember always that he really likes the little vermin and sets an absurd value on the distinctiveness of every one of them. When he talks of their losing their selves, he means only abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts, I'm afraid, sincerely that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Hence, while he is delighted to see them sacrificing even their innocent wills to his, he hates to see them drifting away from their own nature for any other reason, and we should always encourage them to do so. The deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material the starting point with which the enemy has furnished him. To get him away from those is therefore always a point gained. Even in things indifferent, it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world or convention or fashion for a human's own real likings and dislikings. I myself would carry this very far. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not actually a sin even if it is something quite trivial such as a fondness for county cricket or collecting stamps or drinking cocoa such things I grant you have nothing of virtue in them but there is a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgetfulness about them which I distrust the man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one thing in the world for its own sake, and without caring tuppence what other people say about it, is by that very fact forearmed against some of our subtler forms, subtlest forms of attack. You should always try to make the patient abandon the people or food or books he really likes in favor of the best people, the right food the important books. I have known a human defended from strong temptations to social ambition by a still stronger taste for tripe and onions. (laughs) It remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bent that way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy plants in a human soul. Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Your affectionate uncle, Scrutate. Now we could write a whole book just on this one letter. But we're going to try to tease out uh, some habits here. So the first one... This is probably not something that is rocket science, but it is something that we know, but we don't put into practice. As soon as you become aware you have strayed, repent and return to the Lord. Look how Screwtape's entire house of cards is utterly destroyed when this patient repents. It is, as they say in the language of hell, a defeat of the first order when the patient repents. So if you want to annoy the devil, repent when you've messed up. Repent and return to the Lord. And this from Psalm 73. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked and hard, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And then from Acts, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And for so many of us, we want that refreshing, but we don't really want to repent. And the trick is that the refreshing only comes once the repentance has taken place. And the second thing, embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth and goodness. This is so unbelievably important. It's one of the areas where we are like the fish in that story not knowing the water that we're in. For most of recorded human history, men have been men and women have been aware of the power of the beauty that surrounds us. The beauty that is in nature the beauty that is created by humans in art and in music, the beauty that is created in literature, the beauty that is created in architecture, all of those kinds of things. And with the advent of the 20th century and a new kind of um, relativistic meta-narrative that that is obsessed with deconstructionism, this whole idea of beauty has just gone out the window. And so... Um, instead of having the beautiful buildings that characterize the historic district in Charleston we get sorry if any of y'all are developers, Uh, we get those big box things that they're building at the foot of the Cooper River bridges, Um, just all of these things that look like giant rabbit warrens. And there's no grace, there's no elegance, there's no beauty, there's no proportion, none of those kinds of things. And it's not an accident, because the worldview that supported truth, beauty, and goodness as being supplanted by a worldview that says those are not real things, Mm -hmm. that beauty, truth, and goodness are not (laughs) objective qualities, which, if you go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle and all the way forward to the beginning of the 20th century, the vast majority of the human race have always believed that these are objective qualities, and Christians have believed that these are rooted and the essence of who God is and what we see in the Trinity. But we have thrown that out in favor of we decide on our own what we think is beautiful or good or true, and that each person is his own creator, and that the worst thing you can do is say that what someone thinks is beautiful um, that you don't agree, you know. Everybody is entitled to define beauty in their own way. But this flies in the face of Scripture. And again, we could have a whole book just on this point, but a couple of verses just to make you think. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect (coughs) gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And then from Isaiah, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, And then this should sound familiar. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And there could be a hundred verses up there about this. And yet our culture um, is like that old song that starts off Les Miserables, Look down, look down. And it was so interesting to me when Canon J. John was just here preaching in his sermon, his first point was, look up. Uh, Look up. Look (laughs) up into the vault of heaven. Look up to the place where the heavens declare the glory of God. Embrace these real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. And I was so happy today because I had lunch with someone And I asked him what he was doing after lunch. And he said, well, I was listening to the podcast, and so I decided I'm going to do something really unusual today. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, I've got two books that I really like, and I'm going to go to this really beautiful building in downtown Charleston and sit in the building and read with my phone turned off. And I thought, that is beautiful. And yet the funny thing is, We don't think that that's radical, but that's radical. radical. That is radical in our culture. And part of what we need to do is to embrace these kinds of real pleasures. And you see in the letter the idea that the guy read a book that he really liked, not to make clever remarks about it, but because he really enjoyed it. And then he took a beautiful walk by himself, to a place that clearly had memories for him. And he sat there in that place soaking up that atmosphere while he drank his cup of tea. And if you're not a fan of tea, I would encourage you to cultivate that <laughs> too. Um, there's a lot of beauty in tea. It's good for you. Um, but that's not really what this is talking about. The, the whole idea here is that we need to become aware that we are, particularly when you live somewhere like Charleston, we are surrounded by profligate beauty. We live in a place where you can go and watch the sunset over the water. You can stand on a pristine, clean beach and put your toes in the ocean. But the problem for most of us is we're too busy to ever go do that. And I would encourage you to start embracing these pleasures. To embrace something means that you go after it and then you hold it to yourself. All right, enough on that one. Three, cultivate those pleasures, gifts that are part of God's design for you. Uh, There's that wonderful poem, or Methopoeia, that Tolkien wrote for Lewis um, right after they had the conversation that led to Lewis's conversion. And in that, Tolkien uses this beautiful image about God's Presence and essence being this beautiful beam of white light. Just gorgeous beam of light. And then it hits a prism. And when it hits the prism, it scatters into this gorgeous spectrum of colors. And that no point on that spectrum is just like the one next to it. And he says that's the way we are. Each one of us is a point on that spectrum reflecting God's image, but in our own unique way. And so we each have things that we're good at, things that we're gifted in, and you just think about what would happen if people that we admire and who have become famous because of their gifts, what if they hadn't used them? What if they had given up? What if Monet had decided not to paint and to be a bookkeeper. you know what? There's just so many examples. But one of the best examples, I'm going to give a big movie plug here. If you haven't watched the movie Chariots of Fire, please go watch it as soon as you can. Um, it is one of the most deeply Christian movies that has ever been produced. And it's the story of the British Olympic team in the 1924 Olympics. And there's one of the runners, Eric Little, who is from a deeply Christian Scottish family. And there's debate in the family about whether he should run or whether he should go on to China to the mission that the family helps run there. And so finally, um, and then there also is debate about whether he can run on the Sabbath and some other things like that. But there's this beautiful scene where he's talking with his sister. And his sister is trying to say that, he needs to leave the running and go to China. And he looks at her and says, Jenny, I know that God made me for China. And she starts getting really excited. But then he says, but God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that is the kind of thing that God wants us to experience. He wants us to at least some of the time be in that zone where we're using the gifts that He's given us in such a way that not only does it bring joy to us, but it brings joy to others. And the problem for so many of us is that we don't embrace that because we don't like the gift we got and we wish we had someone else's. And this passage from Romans used to always puzzle me, but I think it is really profound. So Paul says this in chapter 12. And I used to read that and think, well, duh, you know, if your gift is teaching, of course you're going to teach. But the more I thought about it, I realized that's not really true. So often we want to be someone other than who God has made us to be. We want to be gifted with this thing that we see in another person that we admire so much And we complain to God about the way that he made us with the gifts that we have, and we reject those, and we bury them. It's just like in the parable of the talents, where uh, the man who gets the one talent says, I knew you were a hard master, and so I went out and buried my talent in the soil. Here, have back what is yours. And nothing except sorrow and brokenness comes from that. But then you look at the others, who have taken what they've been given and used it and multiplied it, which brought joy to them, joy to the master, and then commendation ultimately from the master. So part of this is understanding what your gifts are. And this can be spiritual gifts, but it can also be talents, things that you're good at. It could be languages. It could be music. It could be things that you just enjoy. It could be being a really great cook. There's so many things like that. And what Lewis is trying to say in this letter is that those kinds of pleasures where God's made you good at something, um, those are to be shared and to enrich the body. Um, They're not to be just left untended and choked out by the cares and deceitfulness and vanity and bustle and irony of life. And then fourthly, avoid seeking after worldly trends and fashions at the expense of of what you truly love. Now this is one of these things that you wish you could take every teenager in the world (laughs) and really help them understand what this means. But again from Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And if you want to do a little test case about this, Drive up King Street north of Calhoun, around 2 a.m. on a Friday or Saturday, and you will see this in action. And the thing that's so sad is a lot of the people that I know who are in their 20s, they feel enormous pressure that that's what they're supposed to do on the weekend because that's what everyone else is doing. And if you don't want to do that, well, they, they're maligned. You know, they are talked badly about. But what this verse is saying is that we need to figure out what it is that God has made us for, what do we truly love, and embrace those things, not embrace what the world says is cool. And the problem for so many of us now, um, and part of the reason this is harder than it used to be, is that now we have multi-billion dollar budgets that are going toward making us want to desire things that we never knew we needed before, (laughs) and creating this sense of dissatisfaction. And there's one of these ads, I wished, I I looked for it on YouTube, I couldn't find it, but it was this ad that came out about 10 years ago, which shows you this has been going on for a long time. But it came on, and it was this ad with this really sort of triumphal music, and then this really well-dressed, attractive woman coming on and saying how she had thought that she had most of what she needed until she had realized that there was this particular item that she did not have and that as she thought about it she realized she was not complete as a person until she got this particular item and that once she had gotten it it had changed her life Revolutionized her world, and now all of her friends were green with envy. It was a kitchen sink. It was a kitchen sink. A kitchen sink! But it had all of the guns of Madison Avenue, you know, trying to get you. And it's so easy to fall for that sort of thing. And the problem is that many of us feel like, well, what we truly love isn't really that cool, so we should try to love something else. But what Lewis is saying here is embrace your design. Embrace what you're good at and find joy in that and find ways to share that joy with others. Then, fifthly, be proactive in forming new habits based upon repentance rather than wallowing in self-absorption. Now, I don't want to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever wallowed in self-absorption, but this is the the whole sort of poor, poor, pitiful me. Um, it's so sad that I have to go through all of what I go through, and no one understands what I have to put up with, and oh, I have the worst. It's just awful. Well... Just in case you didn't know, that is not what scripture commends in terms of behavior. So here uh, is a great verse um, from Paul in Corinthians. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And this is one of Satan's great schemes to get you to experience a guilt or grief that doesn't lead to repentance, but just leads to wallowing. And wallowing makes you like one of those pigs. You know, if you've ever seen a pig wallow in the mud, what happens when you take a pink pig and it goes and wallows in the mud? yeah you can't even after a while the pink you can't even see it you think the pig's black and um, that is what Lewis is talking about here and that when we realize that we have gone wrong in some way then we need to have grief unto repentance and that that repentance is turning and running back to the Lord as we've talked about and the interesting thing about it is look at this contrast The repentance, when you have godly grief that produces repentance, that leads to salvation without regret. And salvation, that's one of those big words that we don't really think about very much. Salvation, we tend to think of that meaning escape from hell. That is not what that word means. Salvation is like making everything right that could possibly be right in our relationship with God, a uniting of us to God's purposes and God's presence. It is a big, powerful word. So that is where godly grief and repentance lead us without regret. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have any regrets, uh, but this is a beautiful thing. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That's pretty stark contrast. And in case you didn't get it, one of those is better than the other. (laughs) Um, You want to embrace the godly grief that will lead to salvation. And then there are two beautiful truths about spiritual warfare in this letter. This first one, later in the book, Screwtape is going to get in trouble for this, Mm -hmm. that he actually said this. But in the letter, he says, God actually really likes the little vermin. Mm -hmm. He's not supposed to admit that. But the truth of that is so beautiful that God loves you enormously as an individual. And there's so many passages about this, but I love this one um, that's in the discourse that comes right after the Last Supper. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then a little later, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And this is a truth that is so hard for us to get our heads around, but it's so important that God loves us. God loves us deeply, that he treasures us, as Zephaniah says, that he joys over us with singing and when you understand that you are the beloved creation of an almighty and perfect God, that contrasted to what the word, world tells you is that you accidentally evolved from some cosmic goo and that you could just as easily have been a cockroach. You know That gives you a very different view of what it means to be human. So this is an important truth to embrace. And the second one... The more you lean into your relationship with God, the more truly you will become your authentic self. And what he says in this letter, and Satan is not very happy about this, but what he says is that the enemy, God, wants for all of these loathsome little vermin to come back into relationship with him so that they can be more fully what they were created to be going back to that beam of light and the spectrum of color, it's getting all of the static and the particles and the dirt out of that spectrum of light so that we can shine the way that God made us to. And this whole idea that we find our meaning and purpose outside our relationship with God is um, one that our culture keeps trying to foist on us, but it is a lie. And when we live into that design of God, Um, beautiful things happen. And again, here from Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. And then delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That when you delight yourself in him, your heart changes so that you begin to want the things that he has made you for. So there's so much rich beauty in this particular letter that I really commend it to you. And then this last little part from letter eight, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. And I have one little extra. We're not going to read it, but please read Psalm 73 if you haven't read it lately. This is a remarkable psalm, and I'm just going to read the first little bit. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that is so often true in our culture today. And this is a beautiful, beautiful psalm um, that addresses that. And it it just goes hand in glove um, with what we've talked about tonight. So with that, let me close us with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have made us in your image that you've made each one of us with particular gifts, that you've made us with likes and dislikes, things that we're good at, things that we're not good at. Lord, we pray that you would help us to embrace your design because you are a good creator. You are a good maker. And that as we do that, that you would help us to open our eyes, to not look down, but to look up, to embrace the beauty, truth, and goodness, which even in the midst of our fallenness we can still see in the wonder of your creation. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from the schemes of the enemy and that instead we would annoy the devil by living out a life that honors you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.